This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. IATP is celebrating 25 years of working for fair and sustainable food, farm, and trade systems. This edition of Radio Sustain is for December 2011. I'm Andrew Ranallo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's Radio Sustain, we talk with IATP's Jim Harkness about the Occupy Wall Street movement and its broad intersection with the food system and all of IATP's work. Then, we connect with Karen Hansen Kuhn, director of IATP's Trade and Global Governance Program, and talk about the climate talks currently taking place in Durban, South Africa, what IATP staff are hoping to come home with, and the current state of play in the climate issue worldwide. But first, we sit down with Julia Olmsted and discuss what her new report says about increased U.S. exports and why, despite the tired soundbite, they fail to feed the world. So in your research for your new report, did you come across anything surprising? Uh... Yes. You know, we were comparing data from the paper that came out in 1999 with current data. And so it was really about what are the big changes that have happened in the last 12 years. And I think the thing that was most striking was the changes in our exports of soybeans to China. So last year, we exported 484% more soybeans to China than we did in 1999 when the last paper came out. And that's 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 a huge increase in exports, and so it really it really shows that there's been a big shift in the way that food is moving around the world and who's getting these exports. It creates, to be honest, a sort of a more complicated picture, I think, than we had in 1999 when it was really easy to say, okay, there are these OECD nations that are pretty easy to label as wealthy nations, and then there are these really undernourished countries. And it was really clear cut who was getting what. And I think China, you know, doesn't belong to either of those categories. And so it's a little bit harder to tease out and really think about the question of what does it mean to feed the world? And how are our exports most efficiently used? And and is that a good place for them to go in terms of helping to contribute to alleviating world hunger? So for me, that was really interesting. And I think just generally, though, what, what's sort of surprising, and not that it should be, but is that this myth of feeding the world still persists, that even though it's really never been true, it still is so pervasive. Um, what do you think makes it so persistent and pervasive in the United States in particular? Well, it's kind of a hard question. I mean, like I said, it's not true, and it, <laughs> I don't think it ever has been, so it's not based on data. I think that it has provided a really good soundbite and selling point for agribusiness for a long time. It's really easy to sound noble, dutiful, and concerned, I think, if you're saying that you know we have been charged with uh, alleviating hunger, with feeding the world, and this is a noble calling, and we're doing everything we can to to make that happen. And I think it's makes some of the maybe more unsavory aspects of agribusiness that I think the public is often aware of. It makes them maybe a little bit more palatable when you are able to think, well, you know, that's what we have to do. That's what it takes to, to really feed the world. 
It's interesting, though, because I think that 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 argument is maybe becoming stale, not only because it's not relevant, but just because the public, maybe they're just not swayed by that anymore, or they've heard it for too long. I'm not sure. But there was a study that came out in September. It was a, a poll by a group called the Center for Food Integrity, and they surveyed a large number of U.S. citizens and found that a great deal of them said that the U.S. does not have a responsibility to provide food for the rest of the world. And that could sound sort of xenophobic to just say, you know, they're not our problem, but it went a little bit deeper and it said that these consumers didn't just say that we don't have the responsibility, that they said it's more important for the U.S. to teach developing nations how to feed themselves than to export food for them. So, To me, it's an indication that the average U.S. consumer has a much more nuanced understanding of this than agribusiness is is really grasping in its marketing. So, you know, I think it's hard to say why it's persisted, but hopefully maybe its power as a as a marketing tool is is diminishing. And that brings up an interesting point, bringing, you know, increasing production capacity, developing nations looking forward. How can we take the focus off of these really input-intensive industrial approaches, technology solutions to hunger, and where should we move that focus? Well, I mean, we're always going to have trade, and we're always going to have exports and imports, and there are always going to be countries that need food that they can't produce. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I would not argue that everybody needs to be entirely self-sufficient. But just thinking bigger about our goals, where we want to see agriculture end up in the next decade, 25 years, 100 years, and and thinking if given that we have declining supplies of petroleum, given that industrial agriculture is entirely reliant on inputs that are made from petroleum, we're just not going to have the resources to keep farming in the way that we're farming. So we need to figure out other ways to do it. And, and fortunately, we know how to be productive and to be sustainable. And the keys to that, I think, are really putting a lot of resources um, in terms of federal funding from the U.S., in terms of academic research, into regionally appropriate, smaller-scale agriculture. And there have been a lot of studies that have shown that those kinds of systems can be more than sufficient to feed growing populations and can have a lighter burden on our natural environment. So I think the keys are really um, shifting where we put our money, so less of a focus on propping up these kinds of industrial-based export systems and more of a focus on regionally appropriate smaller-scale farms. Thank you very much. Thanks. Find Julia's new report and all of IATP's latest work at IATP.org. Occupy Wall Street movement originated from a July call to action by adbusters to draw a line in the sand on the growing corporate control of our democracy and government, and in particular, 
Wall Street's influence. The movement has since grown worldwide. IATP's president, Jim Harkness, discusses the Occupy movement and its connection to IATP's work. What's your impression of Occupy Wall Street, and what in particular do you think has made it take off? Well, I'm incredibly inspired by it, as is everybody at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And I think it's taken off because it speaks to people about what their real needs are and what deep down they've always perceived has been the problem. You know, when I hear the testimonials that you can find online, when I've talked to people here in Minneapolis where IATP staff have been involved in organizing the occupation, or in Oakland where I visited a couple of weeks ago, you realize that these are ordinary people. They're honest and hardworking, and they tried to play by the rules and thought that in return they would uh, be able to have good jobs and good livelihoods and maybe save for the future for their children. And they found instead that their wealth has been taken away and their options have been taken away because we've allowed our society to be uh, rebuilt and our political and economic institutions to be remade to the benefit not just of the few, but of the tiny few. And so I think that understanding that what we need to do is not think about how many more programs do we cut and how much more austerity can we have? How do we make ourselves more competitive by cutting people's wages? But really thinking about how do we remake our political and economic institutions so they serve the interests of the many and not the few? I think that's what really speaks to people. And going further, how, how do the Occupy Wall Street protests connect to IATP's work? Well, the work that we've done from the very beginning when we were working on economic globalization has been precisely about this issue of the many versus the very, very few. When things like the World Trade Organization and the North American Free Trade Agreement were being proposed, we were told, well, this is going to be win-win, it'll be for, better for everybody. But what we realized even back then was that, in fact, this was just a way of redesigning the global economy so that benefits and profits could flow more quickly to a small number of corporations and the heads of those corporations. And so throughout our history, this understanding that an economy that's structured to benefit a few small corporations is going to be bad for the rest of us and we need to, to fight that, that's been central to our work. And today, whether we're working on the farm bill, which a huge proportion of which is about feeding hungry people. How can there be 45 million Americans that need food stamps, right? Or working on uh, the way that Wall Street speculation didn't just cause the housing industry to collapse. It also led to a huge spike in global hunger, right? All of the work that we do, the analysis we do, revolves around this basic notion of um, social justice, and directly, what is IATP doing to support Occupy Wall Street? I know you said there was some involvement with IATP staff in Occupy Minneapolis. Sure. Maybe you could elaborate a little on that or well, a bigger movement as well. Well, I mean, I think that informally, as concerned Americans, IATP staff have gotten involved in demonstrations and even some of the organizing here in Minneapolis. But I think more basically, one of the inspiring things, if you go to formerly, you know, to Zuccotti Park or to downtown Minneapolis, or Oakland, or the other sites, one of the things you understand about this movement is that a big component of it really is about education. It's like understanding how we got to where we are, understanding how the rules uh, were written, and, and how they're unfair, 
And I think that for us, that's a really important role to play. We've actually sent a lot of materials to the library, and there are libraries in all of these places, the library in, in New York City. But um, more importantly, the work that we do everywhere is really about not just educating about what the problems are, but also saying, okay, well, we want to move away from the casino economy controlled by Wall Street. How do we support the real economy that supplies people with good jobs, that makes sure that everybody has enough to eat, uh, and that's good for the planet? And that's what I think a lot of our work is about, is showing really... You know, there's a lot of uh, whining about, well, why don't they have specific demands or specific alternatives that they want to propose? Well, I think that we can help propose better ways to organize the economy. And it's it's not some sort of dream. There are things that are already out there. Here in Minneapolis, we've um, helped neighborhoods organize farmers markets that get food to people that need it in low-income areas that otherwise wouldn't have it. Um, at the national level, we lobbied very hard for re-regulation and closing the loopholes that created this casino economy in the first place. And internationally, we, we've always fought for the rights of developing countries to decide how to feed themselves. I think all of those things for us our, our part in showing that a better world is possible, which is, I think, what Occupy is all about. All right, thanks very much. Thank you. With the UN climate talks underway, we connected with IATP's Karen Hansen Kuhn as she was preparing to travel to Durban, South Africa to join the talks. What does IATP hope to see there, and what's the ideal, and what's realistic? Well, of course, the ideal would be to get binding emissions targets and commitments of funding to really solve the issue of climate change, and that is truly not going to happen. I think there's a real danger that the commitments that have been made already won't be honored moving forward. But I think the way we're focusing on this is looking at the long term. What are the structures we need to set in place now so that there can be progress in the future? So we're working on a few things. One is looking specifically at how agriculture is dealt with in the climate talks. There's a proposal on the table to start to negotiate on agriculture, but under mitigation. So that means they'd be focusing mostly on how agriculture can serve to take carbon out of the atmosphere. We think that's the wrong approach, but it would lead to all kinds of bad incentives that could lead to land grabs, could undermine the right to food. So we're working with different groups to think about how to push that back into discussions on adaptation, which is about how farmers are coping with climate change, and to think about the right kind of adaptation adaptation that's based on agroecological principles that benefits the environment, people's right to food, people's right to land at the same time. So some of it is discussions with delegates about where agriculture should be dealt with. Finance is another huge issue. Steve Supan is focusing especially on the Green Climate Fund, which is being set up to channel monies that might be made available for mitigation or adaptation. So he's working with a number of groups to think about how that fund is set up, make sure it's participatory, transparent, that it's set up in a way that when it does have money, 
um, it really can be effective. And then also, related to that, the other supposed source of finance is carbon markets, which is an issue we've been working on for quite a while. And there, I think what's happening is that, especially with African governments, people are seeing that developed countries aren't coming through with their commitments on funding. And so they're holding out carbon markets as a way to kind of create funding through offset credits. And we think that's a mistake. Also, what's new is they're trying to bring agriculture into carbon markets. So there is this idea that, for example, carbon could be put back in the soil, kept there, and offset credits sold based on those emission reductions. The problem is, first of all, it's hard to measure how much carbon stays in the soil, and that the markets are in total disarray. Prices have been crashing, there's been fraud, and so what's held out as a solution is really on pretty shaky grounds. So again, we'll be working with allies there, especially, I think, African climate justice groups that are there trying to raise these issues and think about, over the long haul, how they have these debates within Africa and how we bring those discussions back to the U.S. It's well known that developing countries either are or will be some of the hardest hit by the effects of climate change. In a process like Durban and the COP17, what are the big challenges for developing countries in being represented, perhaps, and joining the conversation and helping sway the conversation to something that will ultimately help them, as you described, adapt to climate change and weather out the worst effects? There are the challenges you might expect that the smaller countries are dominated by the larger countries, but I think there's some real parallels and lessons from the WTO process. On the one hand, you have some of the developed countries leading small, what they call green room discussions, where they make deals on the side that aren't inclusive, so that's a big challenge. That happened in the WTO, that happened in Cancun with the climate talks. On the other hand, you have these really interesting coalitions of developing countries coming together. I saw a statement today that was signed by five Latin American countries and 30 African countries pushing for a different approach, emphasizing adaptation over mitigation. So they are starting to form alliances to push the discussions in a different direction. That you know, in the WTO talks, I think it shifted what seemed to be a sort of moving train, a certain direction. And I think we're hopeful that in Durban and in the climate talks, they will continue to have influence. So working in Durban and these coalitions, you're hopeful that there is a space there that can bring about progress on the issue of climate change. Well, I hope so. But like I said, I think it's for the long term. I think You know, in terms of what we're hoping to accomplish there, one important issue will be working with African groups. We're developing a partnership with the African Biodiversity Network, for example, and meeting folks from the African Food Sovereignty Alliance. Those groups are bringing a caravan of climate justice activists from Africa, different countries in Africa, to the talks. So a lot of this will be sitting down with them, hearing their priorities, thinking through how we make this conversation continue, not just in the U.S., but in the different countries and how we can support those efforts. Great. Thank you very much, Karen. Sure. Watch IATP's blog, Think Forward, for news from Durban as the talks continue.
Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, The Gaudy Side of Town by Gangs, Wildfire by Subtract, and The Runout by Maps of Norway. I'm Andrew Ronaldo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>